Hello and welcome back to Footprints. This month we travel back a couple of millennia to the time when the Romans came to Bath and settled here. So what did they contribute? What impact did they have over the 400 or so years they were here? To find out, I meet an archaeologist who specialises in the Romans and you'll hear his views on what exactly they did for Bath. We'll visit the year-old Claw Centre down at the Roman Baths and we'll meet a woman who found an extraordinary Roman object in her garden wall. But let's start with Bob. Bob Whitaker is an expert on Roman archaeology in Bath. He's a member of the Bath and Counties Archaeological Society, known as Bacchus. He's been their chairman and their director of archaeology, and he's currently their archaeological advisor. What's more, when he's not doing that, he's a croquet coach and referees up to international standard. And in between tournaments, including the World Championships, he kindly found time to meet me at his home. Here he is. So welcome to the podcast, Bob. Tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you first get involved in archaeology? Oh, when I was a boy, I was always fascinated with history and archaeology. Woolworths used to sell little books about A4 size paperback. There were other sixpence or one shilling. And there were three or four in the series. The one I remember most was called Prehistoric and Roman Britain. It had just black and white line drawings quite remarkable drawings of flint arrowheads and flint axes and Roman villas and Roman buildings. And as a boy, that just intrigued me. And then, of course, living here in Bath and going to the Roman Baths, which was then quite a primitive museum, but seeing pottery and artefacts and things got me interested. I was still at school, at the art school, when I saw an article in the Bath Chronicle uh, advertising for uh, an open day at this site on the Fossway between Peasdown and Radstock. So I went out by bus and that's when I joined the society and got involved and used to try and go out as many Saturdays as I could afford to get the bus fare. Very strange because most of the people there seemed to me to be extremely elderly and I was the only one that was young at that time. Not a place to meet people of your own age then. But you met a very knowledgeable and very well-known Archaeologist, tell me about him. Who? What was his name? He was Mortimer Wheeler, a very famous archaeologist. He used to appear in the 50s and 60s in a television programme called Animal, Vegetable and Mineral with a man called Glyn Daniels where they used to be shown items and objects and, and give their view on it. What I hadn't realised at the time was that he was the vice chairman of Cameron. Every so often, I can't tell you how often now, perhaps once a month, there was excitement because Wheeler was coming to visit. And Wheeler used to be given a wooden box sometimes with a sack on the top and would sit on the side of the trench and comment on things. And very occasionally would poke people with an umbrella <laughs> if he saw something interesting. One day when I was excavating a little Roman oven by the side of one of these, it was a little industrial estate alongside the Fosway, and I was excavating a an oven and it was either a, a remains of a spoon or a piece of pot and Wheeler said to me when I showed it to him that he said remember Robert you're not digging up things you're digging up people and that that lasted with me for years even 
uh, when I was doing my master's degree and I was working on Bathampton Down, a Roman farmstead, and some of the finds were still in the Roman Baths Museum. And I went to see it, and one item was a baby's feeding bottle. This was a bottle that a mother had been given a baby or a small child, and then the spout had broken, so they'd thrown it away. So what he said all those years ago was very, very true. Now, you mentioned doing your Masters. Most people would imagine you did that in your 20s, but you didn't, did you? Tell us about that. Um, no, I, I didn't have any university education until I retired in um, 1996, 97. Uh, and then I went into private consultancy. By 2000, I'd lucky enough to get a place at Bristol uh, to study, uh, to do a master's degree in archaeology, Roman archaeology. And I was then um, 57 years of age. Fantastic. So... This episode is all about the Romans. What did the Romans ever do for Bath? So can we just start with the timeline and tell us when the Romans first came to Britain and then how long it took them to get to Bath? Well, the the, the first Roman invasions, of course, of Britain were Julius Caesar's, 55 and 54 BC, but he didn't get very far. He only really moved into the southeast and then withdrew back. So it wasn't until 43 AD when the Emperor Claudius decided for whatever reasons that he was going to invade Britain completely. And so uh, in 43 AD, they came across the channel, most probably landing on the island of Thanet, three major legions, the 9th, the 14th and the 2nd. It's the 2nd I'd been more interested in because they were at that time the legate uh, was Vespasian, who was to become emperor. And they were given the task after Claudius came over with a train of elephants to accept the surrender of the British at Colchester. Uh, Vespasian was given the job of subjugating the whole of the south and the southwest of England, and that has been the bit that my study, both at Bristol and later on at Reading University, were to deal with the road networks uh, that developed as part of that invasion, and, and secondly, how they developed when towns and cities and establishments were built. Yeah, so talking of roads, how did the Romans first come into the city of Bath? The first uh, road that ever came across the country from the east came from Winchester and ran through Salisbury uh, and ran well south of Bath to the lead mines uh, on the Mendip Hills at Charterhouse. Clearly, the Romans knew about the lead. They knew the value of that lead. They wanted that lead. And so they drove a road from Winchester right across the country to Charterhouse on Mendip. Uh, with, I suspect, the cooperation of the Belgae tribe who landed was across. And they took back wagon loads of, of lead, huge wagon loads of lead, many of ingots of which have been found at Southampton and at sur le seine in France. So they were taking it back across the channel. And they were all marked Imp Claudius, in other words, the Emperor Claudius, XRs, which probably meant that they cupellated the silver from that lead for coinage. So as the legion came across Hampshire and Dorset, when they got to a huge legionary fort at a place called Lake Farm, which is near Wimborne in Dorset, before they moved to Dorchester and stormed Maiden Castle, they drove this road, most of which is known, near Salisbury, through Longleat, through Froome, Hinton Charterhouse. We have traced it down into Midford, where it was excavated near the Hope and Anchor. We then found it across the terrace of Midford Castle, 
we found an incredible zigzag across Horse Coombe Vale and then across the top of Coombe Down, dropping down the um, side of Prior Park Road and into Bath, to Bathwick Street. And that's as far as it ever went. It simply was driven to Bath for one reason and one reason only, to bring Roman engineers to cap the spring, to contain that hot spring and then build the Great Bath. Uh, and they had to do it in conjunction with the local tribe. And you only have to look at the pediment on the temple, which is in the bars now, of this great Celtic head. It's not a Roman head. And, of course, the Romans dedicated the temple to the god Sol, which was the Celtic god, and their god Minerva. And the head of Minerva was found, of course. Once the bars had been developed, then all the infrastructure that goes with it had to, had to take place. Whether it was ever a major military bathing establishment, I don't know, maybe by the time that it was all completed, it became a kind of cultural and religious centre. It doesn't appear in Wacher's book on Roman towns of Britain. It was never a town in society. It was a, a much more select place to be for religious and um, cultural purposes. Bob, you must have found so many exciting things in your time looking for archaeological sites. Tell me the one that's given you the most thrill. Some of the skeletons that I've excavated have been very, very interesting. One which was called Thomas Street Man it turned up when a man was trying to um, deepen a garden from a courtyard area and uh, sticking out at the end, some eight, ten feet below ground level, was the end of a stone coffin, which unfortunately the police were called in, broke the end of the coffin lid off, took a leg bone away. It was sent, I think, to a hospital in Bristol where a doctor told him it was very, very old. Uh, I then excavated the whole of that coffin, which was a north-south burial, probably meant pagan burial, second, third century, and the young person in it subsequently we discovered by my Dawn Hodson, the osteoarchaeologist who did all the work on the bones, was a young man between 30 and 40. He'd obviously had a good send-off because down the sides of the coffin were broken cups and plates and mugs, so they'd given him a good send-off at his funeral. There are others that have been quite fascinating. <laughs> One of the strangest I had was called to Newbridge, where a builder found this slab some five feet by three feet and lifted up and saw what he thought were coffin remains inside. So I went and persuaded him and his mate to lift this lid off. And I was a bit horrified because there were two tiny coffins in there, literally two and a half feet long. And for one awful minute, I thought they were going to be infant burials because there's something quite disturbing about that. These were little proper coffins, little brass handles on the side. So I excavated the, uh, very carefully the lid, and they were silk line, which filled me with even more horror, until I found a very corroded plaque on the top which said, Woofy, or something like that. And so I realised that these were two dogs that had been buried there uh, in Victorian times. But I was quite relieved, I can tell you. Bob, when you're excavating down into the ground, I wonder whether you have to be careful in terms of viruses and bugs and the like that you might come across. Is that right? Yes, I think in open situations, you'd have to be very careful on some burial grounds and um, cesspits and things like that and take reasonable precautions. 
the four or five skeletons that uh, uh, I excavated were in a stone-lined coffin. The stone coffins, yes. You still wore gloves and a face mask when you excavated the bones out from uh, from those uh, those environments. And I imagine that Dawn Hodson would have been very careful when she washed them all off in the basement of her house before laying them out and telling me whether what sex they were, what age they were, and if they had had any trauma or any diseases. These were just normal precautions. Fascinating. Well. Now, archaeology must have obviously changed hugely in your time. Tell me a little bit about what you've seen and what impact it's had, I suppose, on what's possible nowadays. Oh, I think the difference is fantastic. In, in 1949, there were no geophysics. The archaeological method was entirely different. It was called excavating by bolts. In other words, you dug out sort of eight feet square, but you left uh, squares all the way around it, undisturbed. I think the idea was that if ever there was any reinterpretation, you could go back to those undisturbed bits again. There was nothing like the open excavations that now take place. As a boy, part of the excavation technique was wall chasing. In other words, if you found a wall, uh, you tried to chase it wasn't entirely successful. Nowadays, of course, we've got a whole range of geophysics from magnetometry, resistivity, ground-penetrating radar, whereas we relied in those days upon aerial photographs, mainly black and white by the RAF and the Luftwaffe wartime, that showed certain features up extraordinarily well. As it progressed, aerial photographs in the dry years, like the 76th summer, parched ground showed up many, many more sites. Now, of course, we've got LIDAR, which is the most amazing, which developed as a military. It effectively looks through tree and grass cover. And so, for example, in Savernac Forest, you, you fly over it and the LIDAR picture just shows bare ground, so you can see roads and buildings and so on. Even more extraordinary is this lady, Dr. Sarah Partak from University of Birmingham, Alabama, who uses these satellite infrareds, mainly in Egypt, and has been finding new pyramid sites, about 20 more cities and so on. So these techniques are developing all the time. Even more impressive, in my view, are the sort of radiocarbon dating of things like teeth, and lately the DNA of bones and things. It's really changed our ability to look at things and date them properly. I worked at Reading with a lady that was doing her PhD, who would scrape the inside of pots, Iron Age, Roman, whatever, and by using, I think, gas liquid chromatograph, would know what was last used or cooked in that particular pot and could tell, I believe, the difference between sheep and cattle lipids. And I imagine that in my 70-odd years now, the changes have been so terrific, and I imagine the next 30 years there will be even more technical advances. How thrilling. Thank you so much, Bob, for illuminating a world 2,000 years old. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks so much there to Bob Whitaker. And if you're interested in finding out more, the programme notes will link you to the Bacchus website. Now, Bob mentioned Thomas Streetman, the skeleton found by the builder, and it made me wonder what it might be like to find a 2,000-year-old skeleton in your garden. Well, let's go now to a home in Coombe Down and meet Jane, who did just that. I asked her what exactly they found. Right, well, it's a 
grave of probably a Romano-British man that we uncovered when we were doing some building works in 2019. Happily, he has been examined and is back in his grave and now he is reburied beside our house. Oh, so he's still here. Oh, he's he hasn't still... been removed to an archive no. or a museum. No, he's still there and we've put a inscription in Latin on the end of the sarcophagus. And he was found in a, an enormous piece of stone that had been hollowed out uh, with a very, very heavy top, equally shaped, and it was buried and we found it in the side of a bank at the back of our house. So how did this happen? How did you find it? Well, Darren the digger was digging the excavations and back digging to put some foundations for something prosaic as a garage. And unfortunately, in doing so, he knocked the top off, knocked the front bit, the head part where the head was from the sarcophagus and exposed the bones inside. But we could see the skeleton was intact apart from, sadly, part of the head, which we could put together afterwards. And uh, you could see the, 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 the skeleton going backwards into the recess of the sarcophagus. And we were very sad at the time because we thought he'd been there for almost 2,000 years and we have now disturbed him, which we felt rather bad about. But he's back in there. The archaeologists did look at the bones and photographed them we didn't date them, but because it's east-west, we are assuming it's a Roman grave, but the Christian era, when Christianity actually reached the shore, because it's east-west with the head to the west and the feet to the east. That must have been a remarkable experience for you to see that. I mean, what did you think when you first saw the hole and the bones inside? Well, we were thrilled, really, but as I say, we were very sad that we disturbed him. But, but did you know he was Roman when you first saw him? We assumed it wasn't a recent burial, looking at the size of the sarcophagus and looking at the care in which he'd been laid out. So we thought, yes, and the colour of the bones. But they were all there, and uh, we assumed it was, a, was an ancient grave. Yeah. So who do you ring when you find a Roman skeleton in your wall? Well, we were just about to go on holiday, actually. We were just about to leave for Heathrow. And so we phoned English Heritage. They put us in touch with various other people. And we spoke to Taunton, the county offices in Taunton. And they then contacted someone called Keith Faxon, who was the archaeological consultant for Somerset then. And he got into his car and rushed up from the Fossway down near Stratton-on-the-Foss and he came up immediately and we basically had to leave him in charge but he left us a nice report, he took lots of photographs. I also left my sister-in-law to liaise with him and she was a dentist so that really was useful because she thought he was about in his 30s looking at his dentition. We didn't age the bones or anything like that but that's what she thought. That's absolutely fascinating. And in front of you is the report that Keith wrote. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it really just outlines all the history of the Romans in this part of Combe Down. There was a villa just up the road, and uh, we're told that they didn't actually have cemeteries, even though probably Christian, they didn't have cemeteries then. I suppose we're talking about the year 200 or so. 
and people were buried at the sides of their properties. And looking at the size of the sarcophagus, which is stone and it's been fashioned into, well, a coffin, you wouldn't want to take it too far because it was massive and very thick, made out of stone. It would be very difficult to move it. So it was probably the stone that was used was mined quite close by, actually. And, of course, we have got a lot of quarries around us here, so they would have used the local stone, which was, of course, used later to build Bath. Well, you're on, you're on top of the Coombe Down stone mines, as yeah. featured in a previous episode. So this is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And it's, it's full of photographs of the actual digging work and and there is the sarcophagus yes it was the open end going east west the wet west there east there and also there are photographs see the thickness keith puts the, the coffin back together again to show how it would have been you can see how you i mean it's massive isn't it it's so thick it yeah. must have been almost impossible I'm to sure, lift I'm i would sure have thought they Maybe they put the stone there and they must have fashioned it in situ, I would imagine. I'd, who knows? Maybe he was quite an important man. Oh, gosh. You're, we're looking into the esophagus from one end and you can see the... Well, it's very clearly a pelvis bone, isn't it? Mm, That's and extraordinary. The, uh, uh, and the legs. And the legs. Oh, so. the legs. Mm. I think we should go out and have a look at him. And... Uh, Pay our respects. So, through here. So, this, excuse me, washing, you see, to do the garage, because it had to be backfilled. So, we've hit, this is the end of the end of it. We, want, we left it to show what it looked like the, the stone and the colour of the stone and the shape of it. As you can see, it's Beautifully rounded. It must have taken a long time to make that. Well, this is wonderful. So we're just behind your house in your garden and you've constructed a beautiful curved wall with the sarcophagus kind of peeping out at the bottom and the inscription. That's where the head is. And that's where his, his head, head is. End. So that's, this is, that would be west. South is down there. So that's west-east. So that's what made us think he is Christian. I think that's wonderful. And then we put... This inscription, I did check that, and it says, here lies a, a Roman citizen. And you're going to tell me what it says in Latin? Uh, I don't know how they pronounced it. I don't know if anybody knows how they pronounced it. So it says, hic iacet civis Romanus. Well, how would you pronounce it for me? Mm, no, no differently to that. <laughs> Sounds perfect to me. He's definitely a piece there, I think. I hope so. I do hope so. Thank you so much for showing me and talking to me about it. You're welcome. Thanks there to Jane. So what did the Romans do for Bath? Well, to find out, I headed down to the Roman Baths to the Claw Learning Centre, a state-of-the-art, purpose-built facility running workshops for children and community groups. It's been open only a year and has already won an award. Lindsay Braidley is the Learning and Participation Manager and she kindly offered to show me around. We started off in one of the rooms they use. So this is Minerva. It's one of our classrooms. It's a great room and we use it a lot with secondary schools who come and have a presentation and handle original and replica objects to learn about life in, in Roman Bath. Uh, we set the scene by having the big wall pictures. So we have a picture of the Great Bath Full 
and a picture of the great bath empty because sometimes a school may not yet have visited the site. We also like to have an open display of objects so that they tell a story. So we've got buildings, home life and uh, clothes. And it's a room that we also use with community groups. So we've had groups learning all about yarn, right from a piece of wool from the sheep, because the Romans farmed sheep. It was a, one of the reasons that they came to Britain was for the raw materials. And so we have a, a lead seal from, a, from wool, all the way through to printing. We do all those printing onto fabric. So we do all those we do all those things in a day. We did that as a day school, but we've also done it with community groups as well. And you must do it extremely well because congratulations, you've just won an award. Yeah. So um, the school travel awards, we were nominated by schools and we were first place in the best venue for learning history. Fabulous. Okay, well let's learn some. <laughs> But this is, this is Minerva. If I take you up, I can show you Sue List. That's a lovely little room where all our primary schools happen. This is very different, isn't it? This is like tiered seating looking down to the floor. So this is, this is the room that we call Sulis. It's a room used by our primary schools. And when they come in, then they sit on amphitheatre-style seating. And in here, we have lovely pictures on the wall of our characters who populate the Roman baths. And all these characters have evidence on either an inscription or a tombstone for who they are. And then we filled in a backstory from the knowledge that we know about Romans. And primary schools do sessions in here where they handle original objects, they get dressed up as Romans, and they oh. make mosaics. So that's one one of the sort of drawers. So they're finding out about life in a Roman town. Yes. Would that be it? And what is it about life in a Roman town? What was Bath like? Well, the street plan of central Bath is very similar to the street plan of Roman Bath. So that area within the walls, think of some of the Roman, uh, some of the street names. You've got Westgate, Southgate, You've got upper borough walls, which link to all the, the Roman grid and street plan. Uh, so we've got the Romans to thank for our city centre. There's a really nice quote from the third century, and I always describe it as the third century rough guide because it talks of the city of Aquaesulis, sumptuous splendour, and it's by Salinas in the third century. We have it at the top of the museum as you go down into the, into the Roman baths. It was a very diverse city. We have evidence from tombstones of people who have come from all parts of the Roman Empire. So we've got evidence of people coming from Spain, from Germany, from northern France, from the area around Belgium. We've got evidence of someone coming probably from North Africa, and we know that they grew up in that area from the, the testing that we've done. So it's a great example of people moving, migrating, ending up here. And unfortunately, we know about them because of their tombstones. Just thinking about the development of the baths, was Bath one of the early baths that they developed or had they developed them all over the empire by this point? They're all over the empire. Bath is 
here because of the hot spring. That's the whole reason. It's the only hot spring in Britain. It rises to over a million litres of water a day. It's 46 degrees C. So when they came and discovered this water, why not use it? And so around the spring, they drove in wooden piles and they built up and so created like a reservoir that then they channeled into the bathhouse. So the spring is where the goddess lives, or that's what the Romans believed, and then they used that hot water for bathing. So the, what we call the great bath, the big bath, is the relaxation pool. So you would go there with your friends, maybe to discuss business, to play board games, and you'd also get clean in the bathhouses in the east and in the west. And so women and men were separated, always. Yeah. <laughs> now that, that's a good question. Um, I think it's Emperor Hadrian who had to send out edicts more than once. There are bathhouses, private bathhouses in villas, but they would need to, to get water, then they would need to heat it. And of course, then there's the famous underfloor heating system called Hypercost, which we can see in the museum and which you see in villas. So if you go up to Chedworth, up in Gloucestershire, then you can see that happening. That's, you know, that's somewhere nearby that people may be interested in. So the Romans did quite a lot for Bath. Yes, they did an awful lot for Bath. We have the amazing city that we have because they started it off. We have that, that central area if you look at a map of Roman Bath and you look at a map of modern Bath, then that central area within what were the city walls, and that stayed the same until the expansion up to Queen Square. So in Roman times, was Bath seen mostly as a tourist destination? It was a, a pilgrimage destination. So somewhere to come to visit the temple, but also as a place of healing. So you would come, you would bathe in the hot water, you'd make a, an offering to the gods, you might get healed. Right, where next? So do you want to go and have a look at the investigation zone? The investigation zone, so I definitely do. So when you come into the Rome Baths from Abbey Churchyard, that's at modern street level, but the Great Bath street level is five metres down. So it's all, modern bath is built five metres above Roman yes. bath. Yes, got it. Oh, I see. We're going down a lot of steps to get down to the, the Roman way, level. We're going underground and we're going into the baths complex. And when we go through this door, we are now in the bath complex amidst the re-Roman remains, but we're also underneath York Street. When we were creating this learning centre, we went out to a local school in Midsummer Norton and we asked the children what the centre should look like, what things they wanted to do here. And they said they wanted to dig, they wanted to build, and they wanted to do something with an iPad. <laughs> so what we have done is we've created an archaeological trench where they can dig. We've created some interactives where they can build arches underneath a Roman arch. They can work out how a Roman crane built pillars or columns. And they also use an iPad. We have some stone blocks that were 3D scanned. And so we worked with a local company and we use image recognition. 
So Alex, the archaeologist, the character on the iPad, asks you to find a piece of the Roman building. Alex gives a little outline, and then we use image recognition quite cleverly to put that outline in front of the blocks. And if it's successful, you get a shower of stars and a certificate. And if it's not, it says, try again. Maybe move a little to your left or a little to your right. I'll show you where we dig. Oh, look. So each child gets a little trowel and a brush. And they sit around our trench and they dig for Roman objects Excellent. that are inserted into the Roman trench. And so uh, everybody finds something. Excellent. Be it a bit of pot, uh, a piece of a Roman striggle, a Roman cleaning implement. Um, what else have we got? Sandals, a um, whole range of things in there. All that are objects that they might have seen in real objects upstairs as part of our collection of handling objects, or all objects that are to do with everyday life, going to the baths, living in a house. I went to Pompeii fairly recently and I was struck by two things. One was all the shops had doors and you could still see the grooves where the doors yes. slid backwards and forwards. And the other thing that really struck me was the takeaways yeah. on the corners yeah. where there would be holes where the vats of food sat and yeah. they would go and get their food. I love that. That's just Roman life. That would have been here. You know, by the baths, then there would have been cellars. So maybe uh, you would buy food. I always liken it to when uh, you were learning to swim and you went to the swimming baths and once you got out, you dried, you, were, you always had a Mars bar or a bag of crisps. So what the Romans had were oysters. Really? Because oysters, oysters. oysters weren't luxury in those days. Oysters were general food. Oysters, that is new to me. I never, ever knew that. Yeah, we, Britain... Britain exported oysters to the Roman Empire. There's nothing, you know, nothing new in, in regard to that sort of takeaway food. There's a famous quote from a Roman writer called Seneca who lived above the bathhouse and he couldn't do his writing because he was disturbed by the sounds of the sausage sellers. Think of being by the Great Bath as the equivalent of a leisure centre or the 19th hole on a golf course. It was a bit more romantic in those days than it is now. It's just a vending machine now, isn't it? Where you get your hot chocolate. <laughs> let's, shall I just take you out to the baths? Oh, yeah, let's go to the baths. You mentioned about Pompeii Ooh. and the door. I'm going to show you a Roman door um, way. This is not a Roman door. This is a very modern... This is for our schools. ...alarmed door. So our schools oh. come... Oh, we're where the public are now. the Roman baths through our entrance... And then we're now into a new part of the Roman baths, which is interpreted as the gym. So when you came to the bathhouse, you might do some exercise, much like a gym now. You might do weights, you might play board games. There's a really interesting one, which is a standing long jump. So you stand with two weights in your hand and you just do swing your arms backwards and forwards and then you do a standing long jump. Uh, it's just quite fun. I've tried that. Oh, here we are. We're, we've got the... The film. Oh, yeah. It's all projected onto the walls. It's crazy. I don't think this was here when I last came. This is, this is just over a year, year and a half-ish old since we did the project where we've expanded into the archaeological site. The entrance is a Roman door, so up to about 
just above my head height is a Roman doorway. And you can see the door jamb on the side, if we go and have a look. So you were talking in Pompeii, so here's where your door fitted. Oh yes, look, there yeah. it is. And this is all Roman. Wow. Yeah, and you can see this is where the hinges went. Yeah. Here we are, back at the centre. Well, we're always very happy to have local residents coming in and taking part in activities, visiting when we have the evening opening and it's that little bit quieter and it's a bit special because the torches are on. We always enjoy those, you know, uh, for, for the Roman baths. So, yeah, don't forget about evening opening in, in the high summer. And, of course, if you're a local resident, you can get a discovery card and that gets you free entry to the Roman Bass, the Victoria Art Gallery, and um, there's discounts off in lots of other places as well. It's quite a long list of discounts. So that will help you spend the summer healthily, wisely, and with a bit of fun as well. Thank you so much for showing me around and uh, bringing the Romans in Bath to life. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you so much for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. And for more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. Thanks too to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. I'll see you next month. <laughs>